My name is Lori Krauss, and I'd like to warmly welcome all of you here tonight for our panel discussion on the ethics of eating. I'm on the board of trustees of the synagogue, so I'd especially like to welcome those of you who are visitors here tonight. Tonight's program brings together a remarkable group of individuals who are each passionately engaged in promoting a more just, ethical, and healthy food system. Thank you all so much for being here and taking time out to help us learn more. We're very fortunate to have as our moderator of the discussion, Devorah Brous, the founding executive director of Netiyah, which is a Jewish network with interfaith partners that advances urban agriculture in Los Angeles. Devorah is really one of the movers and shakers in our community, and she's addressing issues of sustainability, health and hunger in exciting and innovative ways. Devorah will have an opportunity to talk more about Netiyah during our discussion and I've provided a link to the Netia website on the resources page, and there are Netia flyers out on the table. Before founding Netia, Dvorah lived in Israel for 15 years, where she was active in the human rights movement there and founded and directed a Jewish Bedouin um, civil rights and environmental NGO. Since moving back to LA, Devorah completed the University of California Master Gardener and Master Composter programs. She became certified in biointensive gardening and permaculture design. She founded the ECAR Green Team, and she co-founded the Food Justice Track of the Chazon Food Conference. We are so grateful for Devorah's participation tonight, and now I'll turn the program over to her so she can introduce the other panelists. Um, before I do, I did want to mention, though, we are being filmed and audio recorded, so this will be available on our website, the video version, and the audio version will be available on iTunes. Thanks. Shalom, good evening, and welcome to our conversation on food ethics. Growing up as a Twinkie-loving, mac-and-cheese-eating Jersey girl who never planted a single thing in her entire life, I went to Israel. I planted fruit trees all over the region for the 15 years that I was there, and not because it came from my roots and I understood what I was doing, but because I was really compelled by the idea of connecting to land. We grew up and we drove everywhere. We didn't really have a sense of connection to land in, in, uh, in New Jersey. So when I went there, I was very, very drawn to the idea of understanding what it means to be a part of a holy land, to have a holy or a sacred connection to land. I came to the Jewish food organizing from my roots in the land, land rights movement over in Israel. I had a very deep connection uh, to the principles of environmental teachings of Baal Tashchit. This is the, the biblical and the rabbinic laws forbidding the unnecessary waste and reckless destruction of resources. And I wrote my master's thesis in response to uprooting fruit trees. And this is something that I founded um, Bustan to address over there. Bustan is, an, uh, is a word that both in Arabic and Hebrew means a polyculture of fruit, fruit trees. And in both Hebrew and Arabic, we were planting fruit trees all over the land. Today, Bal Tashchit for me is something very different. It's all about composting, it's all about sourcing food that's pesticide-free, non-GMO, and locally grown when possible. 
So taking the same ideas of bal tashchit and just interpreting them differently, still applying unnecessary waste and understanding of reckless destruction of resources to, un to move into the food movement, move from the land rights movement into the food movement. But truthfully, despite growing food and composting for many years now, um, learning about the food movement never really digested from my brain deep into my kishkas until four years ago when I was pregnant. I learned about the lack of USDA oversight on pesticide toxicity levels in our food. Since then, reproductive toxicology research in 2011 found both maternal and fetal exposure to carcinogenic pesticides used to grow crops and produce milk, which is essential for pregnant nursing mothers, um, was high. I learned that even though I grow much of my own food and raise hens for our strictly vegetarian family, still I'm likely exposing myself, my infant, and my toddler to toxins, and that's terrifying. So now, in Southern California, as we're planting up our winter gardens, this means that when you see a tomato in the market, on the shelf, most likely it's traveled a very long way to get here. Most likely it's come all the way from Immokalee, Florida. When you pick up a tomato, you can ask yourself a host of questions. Which state or which country did this tomato come from? Was it genetically engineered? Were the farm workers who planted, cultivated, and harvested it persecuted for being undocumented laborers? Were they sexually harassed in the fields by the contractors or by the growers? Were there wages or, were, or was there overtime withheld? Were their hands burned while harvesting tomatoes heavily doused with chemical pesticides? How long ago was it picked? How many farmers and food processing workers, packers, truck drivers, food retail and distribution workers, supermarket workers, supermarket workers and sales agents along the foodway have handled this tomato before me? Or you can chart an easier course and not ask any questions at all and just buy the tomato and slice it up and eat it with your bagel at an Onik Shabbat and not think because in some ways, ignorance is bliss, right? So to kick off our evening discussion tonight and move a little bit past um, the bliss and into some struggles we want to wrestle with as people of the book, we wrestle. Um, I, want us to, um, I want us to acknowledge Sue Miller as an extraordinary, formidable Jewish food activist. We're going to watch a, pre a presentation that she's crafted. And afterwards, I'm going, to, I'm going to direct four questions to our panel of experts who are uniquely positioned to address food justice issues that relate to animal welfare, to the labor chain, environmental health, and the Jewish peace. Then we're going to have a Q&A. And to close, we're going to look at the good news. We're going to explore what you can do and we're going to learn a little bit more about the interfaith food justice organizing of Natia. So Sue Miller of the Natia Council um, is, has prepared a presentation to explore the root causes of the broken food system, the core problems and the status of food insecurity in this country. Sue taught American pronunciation for 20 years, first at Santa Monica College and then at UCLA American Language Center. She's now educating about our broken food system as an active member of Leo Beck Temple. Sue started the Green Team 
and she organized an extraordinary sustainable Shabbat program where temple members provide local farmers market fruit and vegetables for the Oneg Shabbats. This is an inspiring and a replicable model for synagogues all over our city. I want to warmly welcome Sue and invite you to begin our evening. Thank you very much for, for inviting me and for having this panel here. Uh, I'm just delighted to be talking about food because it's such a hot topic today. And food is also in transition, both in our country and in the Jewish community. And it's very hard to keep up with all of these changes. So as a prelude to our discussion tonight, I just want to look with you at some of these changes and try to connect the dots between our personal food choices and some of the larger social and ethical issues that we all care about. Uh, this is a map of the United States. Anybody have an idea what it is? <laughs> one, of the, one of the changes that's going on is that people are cooking less and they're eating out more. We're really losing touch with the sources of our food. And McDonald's epitomizes the industrialization of our food tearing down rainforests uh, to uh, raise cattle for cheap meat and uh, putting GMOs and corn syrup in much of its food. Um, there are over 50 ingredients listed here. It might look like a food, it might be on the label of a food, it might be marketed as food, but is it really food? Uh, another change is that what's going on is that much of our food is processed and that was a label with all those over 50 ingredients from Pop-Tarts. If you start reading the labels, uh, you're going to find a lot of ingredients that you don't recognize. And it's very important to realize that processed food is highly profitable. But is it healthy? Uh, another change that's going on is that following World War II, meat became affordable. And with the increased demand, it's now become a highly profitable global industry. The meat market learned to mass-produce uh, uh, <clears throat> meat in very large, on very large-scale factory farms. Uh, based on 2004 USDA statistics, 99% of our meat come from these large CAFO farms where tens of thousands of animals are crowded into uh, one facility. The uh, CAFO is an acronym, that, uh, a USDA term for Confined Animal Feed Operations. Um, not only are these animals raised and slaughtered in abusive conditions, but the working conditions in the factories of the slaughterhouses, uh, as uh, qu to quote the <clears throat> Human Rights Watch, constitute systematic human rights abuses. Because you may not realize that often underage, illegal immigrants work in highly dangerous situations, sometimes without bathroom breaks to produce most of the meat that we see in all of the markets. Uh, estimated that at least half of the kosher meat, um, unless it's labeled organic, is also CAFO sourced. So you cannot assume that when you buy kosher meat that the animals were either raised or killed humanely or um, compassionately. Um, in addition to the human and the animal rights issues connected to these large farms, the local communities cannot handle the waste from these, uh, these um, crowded farms, so it gets stored in the big lagoons, such as you're seeing here. And um, 
the, these animal waste lagoons are filled with toxic bacteria, viruses, and antibiotics, which ultimately overflow and end up in our water supply. The farmers are giving antibiotics to the animals to hold down disease, which is rampant, and encourage growth. Um, this is a graph of the amount of antibiotics sold in 2011 to both people and animals. Uh, I'm wondering if you realize that the 80% of all the antibiotics sold are for animals, not people. And the farmers can go into a feed store, grab a bag of these without a prescription, and um, <clears throat> meanwhile, people are getting sick and dying from drug-resistant strains of this bacteria, uh, salmonella and MRSA. Last month in California, I don't know how many of you might have seen, that foster farm chickens from California farms were linked to illnesses uh, from a strain of salmonella-resistant bacteria. Uh, another change is that our, the, in the sourcing of our egg and dairy products, which um, <clears throat> mostly now come from these large factory farms. The dairy cattle are, uh, are given um, hormones and antibiotics uh, so that they can be milked many times a day. Most have mastitis and they all die uh, with short, they have short lifespans. Um, another change in our food system is a dependence on chemicals. Um, following World War II, um, the warplanes were converted into crop dusters. And companies such as Monsanto and DuPont, who were making a lot of money during the war producing war chemicals, very cleverly shifted their factories into producing agricultural pesticides and chemical fertilizers. At first, these chemicals all increased productivity. But what happened was we discovered that they created um, insect resistant, um, resistant insects, polluted our water, they weren't so great for our health, and they endangered workers. Uh, I went to a meeting, a PSR meeting, Physicians for Social Responsibility meeting a while ago, and the doctor there who worked up in the Salinas Valley with these farm families said that the incidence of breast cancer among the farm workers' wives is way higher than the average population and that the children, he said 100% of the children had asthma or some bronchial or, or, or related kind of ailments, but most of them have asthma. Um, the um, U.S. spends an estimated $20 billion or more on pesticides. So what happened to all the healthy topsoil in the breadbasket of America here? Well, the overproduction of corn and soy um, and the use of pesticides and heavy fertilizers eroded the soil and depleted the earth. Um, this, these pesticides run off into uh, nearby waterways and they end up, creating, uh, end up in the ocean creating huge dead zones. Um, people don't usually think of this when they're grabbing a bunch of carrots or a head of conventional lettuce or eating at a salad bar. Um, according to the EPA, 80% of our precious disappearing water supply is used for agriculture. And um, agriculture is also the largest source of water pollution. 97% of our rivers and streams test positive for agricultural pesticides. It's really kind of shocking. 92% uh, of the edible freshwater fish test positive for agricultural pesticides. Breast milk tests positive for agricultural pesticides. I don't know the percentage, but it's, it's 
they do find breast, um, pesticides in breast milk. Um, so the health implications of our industrialized food system today uh, are quite significant. Our health care costs are escalating due to all of the diet-related diseases. Uh, a lot of this is tied to the government subsidies for corn because of all the corn syrup that's being added to so much of the processed food. Um, according to Dr. Andrew Weil, corn syrup is not just an alternative sweetener, it's a cheap sweetener that is a major promoter of insulin resistance and obesity. The United States is the least healthy country in the industrialized uh, world. Um, another change that we see today is that uh, all people do not have access to fresh, affordable food, especially the poor. There are large areas in Los Angeles <clears throat> where people cannot buy fresh food. Everything is processed or packaged or bottled. You can buy potato chips, but you can't buy a potato. These food deserts exist across the country in large cities and rural communities alike. Um, whatever you may think of GMOs, you're probably eating them, especially if you eat in restaurants, because 75 uh, or 80 percent of all the processed foods contain GMOs. That's like tortilla chips, ice cream, all kinds of foods, anything with soy or with corn syrup. Um, it's interesting to realize that the food, if you look at the slide in the upper right-hand corner there, that the children drinking milk from non-organic milk are drinking the GMOs that were fed to the corn that produced the milk. So the, the GMOs travel through, through paths to the human body. Anything that's soy, that's not organic, any kind of food containing corn will have these GMOs. Um, our food does a lot of traveling. Uh, we're much more distanced from our food sources. And the food industry is heavily dependent upon fossil fuels. Uh, the, all the big farm equipment, uh, the processing and the packaging factories, uh, the transporting of food and animals. Outside of cars, uh, people don't realize that food is the biggest source of our contrib biggest contributor contributor to our dependence on oil. Uh, and it's a major contributor to global warming, our food industry. Um, food um, traveling and imported food invariably involves labor exploitation, um, especially in the banana, coffee, and chocolate industries. This is a banana worker who was tortured for joining a union um, in Costa Rica. He, they sent him back to work after 16 weeks of torture without any gloves to pull heavily sprayed bananas from bags. Um, this is um, Angelica, who is a Nicaraguan coffee worker fired for joining a, a women's cooperative. She was a single parent of nine children. She could not get work again because she was blacklisted. Um, this is a 15-year-old boy who was kidnapped along with other boys uh, for slave labor in the chocolate industry in the Ivory Coast. All of the fancy Belgian chocolate that we enjoy or buy, it's all coming from slave labor unless it's fair traded or organic. Um, so tonight we ask this question, is the food we eat worthy of a blessing? Or could there be unintended consequences to our food choices that in spite of all of our good intentions, um, could the food that we eat not only be unhealthy, but could it be 
polluting our water supply, destroying our soil, abusing animals, exploiting and endangering workers. What are the ethical implications of the food that we buy and feed our families? And what can we do about it? And that's what I'm going to address tonight. That's a mouthful. There are a lot of mouths to feed. But as our food system becomes more focused on profits, it ends up that more people are left hungry. What's more, the hidden costs of our food are taking a toll on consumer health and the food workers' rights. And these are irreversibly affecting the environment. So we're working to forge alternatives to the exploitative and industrial-scale food system by supporting alternative food systems that sell food that's fresh, nutritious, affordable, culturally appropriate, and grown locally and sustainably with a focus on stewarding the land, animal welfare, and ensuring that the farm and food chain workers who grow, pack, pick, and process our food have comprehensive workers' rights. With that in mind, I'm going to introduce you now to our all-star panel of Jewish food activists and organizers to delve into our conversation on food ethics. Thank you, Sue. Rabbi Jonathan Klein serves as the executive director for Clue LA and has done so ever since 2009. He also currently serves on the boards of the ACLU in Southern California and the anti-war Interfaith Communities United for Justice and Peace. He's a co-chair of PATH's faith-based Our Faith Matters and also serves on the boards of Shemaim Ve'aretz, a national Jewish vegan animal welfare group, and the, and the organization that he has co-founded, Faith Action for Animals. Rabbi Klein is also a board member of, uh, is, uh, was also a board member of the Coalition on the Environment in Jewish Life and served as a member of the Environmental Commission uh, for former Speaker of the Assembly, Karen Bass. And he has three kids. He's a proud daddy. <laughs> Sarah Newman is a powerful, sustainable food activist. She has been a vegetarian for nearly 30 years, since she was nine years old, friends. Since she was nine years old, she has had her mind open to these issues that many of us are just learning about today. Professionally, she develops and manages campaigns for documentary films. She developed and managed the campaign for Food Inc. and the upcoming Finding North, both produced by Participant Media. She's written about food issues for The Huffington Post, Alternet, Civil Eats, and Change.org. She's on the executive committee of Nitiyah for two years, and she's co-founded a sustainable Shabbat group. She's a frequent shopper at many Los Angeles farmers markets, and she tries to grow a few things in her backyard. Becca Bodenstein works to empower teenagers and their parents to seize their own personal wellness and to recognize the power that we each have in the health of the planet. Becca is the 11th grade dean and the director of Jewish life at the, new, at the New Community Jewish High School. She additionally teaches courses in Judaism and the environment and yoga, the kind of courses you never want to miss. She runs the school garden at West Hills High School, and she also serves on the Nitiyah Council, and we're happy to be installing a garden in partnership with Becca in the coming months on Tu Bishvat. What an extraordinary group to begin to tackle some of the questions that we're going to have from the audience. Um, but before we do so, I'm going to pose four questions to the group. So we're going to, you get to see some of uh, 
some of their responses and then think of some of the questions that are not yet addressed from their responses. I'm going to start off with you, Rabbi Klein. What is the most important thing that people should know about the industrial food system today and why? Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, oh, yeah. Sorry about that. Hi, everybody. Thanks for coming out. Uh, you know, fundamentally, our food production system is built upon uh, consumer, uh, you know, quenching a thirst that consumers have. And in our zeal to make sure that everyone has something that they can buy, we find incredible injustices that arise on all levels, whether it be in the production of food, whether it be in the distribution of the food, or even at the point of retail, which is uh, the work that I do with Clue, that the fundamental challenge here is that we do not see the invisible costs that are impacting the lives of all life on this planet. You know, um, most of what I do with Clue is focused on human beings and the struggle and the suffering that they experience through the exploitation that the food chain, uh, the food system uh, creates uh, because people want their cheap uh, purchases. And so we, we pass the costs on in one form or another, in one form or in one place or one context or another. Um, but it also goes to the animals themselves that are, uh, that are also mistreated and suffer uh, horrible uh, fates because of our thirst to satisfy our needs as human beings. So I guess the one thing that kind of unifies all of this is a sense of injustice to uh, those without the power to have um, control over their fate. Sarah, can you address the same question, Sarah? Sarah? Um, and thank you again for having me tonight. Um, obviously, I agree with everything Jonathan said. One thing I would say is that we as a society all pay the costs for our food system. So even if I have the luxury of being able to go to a farmer's market or Whole Foods and buy organic food, I, as a member of the society and as a taxpayer, I am paying for the fact that people who are... Um, undocumented picking tomatoes, do not have health care benefits, they are not paid living wages. So if you think about where your tax dollars go, um, think about our health care costs. We are paying for the fact that people are polluted by pesticides, that their children are polluted by the pesticides. So think about um, just from a micro level, let's take Monterey County, which um, is the salad bowl of America. Um, most of the produce of our country is grown there. It also has actually one of the highest obesity rates. Um, and this is with the large population of farm workers. So these people are not gonna be paid a living wage. So um, they're gonna need social benefits. So let's think about that as a taxpayer. Second, they're exposed to pesticides. Their children are exposed to pesticides. They have neurological delays and developmental issues and so forth that again, our schools are gonna pay for as a society our healthcare system is gonna pay for. On top of that, these farm workers are not making enough money and they rely upon food banks to supplement their um, ability to have food. Charity alone is not gonna solve our hunger problems. Um, and then um, on top of that, um, you know, they're working for these corporations that 
are making billions of dollars um, and not returning that investment in the community. So, I mean, that's just a micro example. I mean, I could talk to you about Walmart, which is the number one place in America for people to cash food stamp benefits. And the reason is because Walmart employees are not paid um, enough in wages to be able to afford to buy food. And so Walmart likes to say, oh, we're the number one place to you know, cash in food stamps. Well, that's because they don't pay their employees enough money, and so they have to receive government subsidies. Um, and that's just one small example. So when people, you know, I think sometimes people are attracted to the, you know, like foodies, and I'm a foodie, and I love eating like cool, you know, local organic food and creative food and this and that. But we really need to take it beyond just thinking about ourselves and the price that we as a society pay when not everyone has access to sustainable, healthy food. And we, um, until we look at that and connect the dots between the fact that I can go to a farmer's market and someone in Monterey who's picking food cannot eat healthy food, what does that mean for our society? What does that say about our society's values? And what is that, what is that costing us? Sure, just what's the most important thing that people should know about the industrialized food system today? Um, I guess the thing that's struck me when I, as I've been kind of learning more and more about this is how powerful they are and, and how so much is going on with our government to um, obliterate a lot of the protections that we've thought we had about our food, mm -hmm. that the regulatory agencies are not being funded, that the industrialized food system is just a, a monolithic dinosaur that just keeps getting more and more and more power. And I don't think many of us are aware of that, that we kind of see food as, well, we've got food, it's in our market, we can go to the farmer's market. And there are things happening behind the scenes while our soil is being destroyed. Goldman Sachs is buying land in, in Africa because a lot of these corporations, they know that our soil is being destroyed and that we're, we're, it's going to, the day is going to come when we won't be able to grow food in this country. So I think about food access for all of us, not just for the poor. Mm -hmm. Becca. I certainly have to agree with the very articulate panel here. Um, but I think if there's one thing for everyone to keep in mind is that there is power in each individual, in the choices that you make, in the dollars that you choose to spend, and how you communicate with your friends, your family, and your community about your food, your wants, your needs, and communicating that also to your local, state, and national government. And that there is there is a movement happening, and that there is power within the people to make those changes. There are optimists among us. <laughs> um, I'd like to ask one of you to leap into this next question. You'll all answer it. Whoever feels most compelled, share your personal journey into food organizing, and speak to what is Jewish about food justice and the Jewish aspects of your journey into food organizing. Becca. Um, I started um, when I was a teenager at, uh, I went to Camp Alanim here in Los Angeles. And um, I started at a very young age as one of the nature guides. And they were like, oh, you're kind of earthy, Becca. 
you should do that. And I didn't know how to do that. So I got sent to a program on the East Coast um, where I was taught um, the people who started the Jewish Farm School here. And I was taught when I was about 17 years old about the connection between Judaism and the environment, which I had no idea. And as I went out on the trail and I started thinking about the notion of blessing, the notion that our stars are connected to our months, and I got really inspired. Um, I spent quite a bit of time in Israel studying. Um, I did a desert ecology program post-grad. I did um, environmental studies as my major in university. I studied at the American Jewish University where I was able to cultivate um, a master's degree focusing on school gardens. And um, I would say that there's such an amazing community here in Los Angeles. I worked at the Shalom Institute not too far from here in Malibu for three years uh, running their garden. And every single day having your hands in the earth and being with kids and inspiring them as they're tasting for the first time, as they're touching for the first time, as they're really truly engaging with the earth, um, you can't help but feel that this is, this is it. Like, this is it. Let kids run free and be a little dirty and eat delicious food and have their eyes light up because they had no idea that this is what a pomelo is, you know, or whatever. There's just so much amazing wonder that connects Judaism and the environment together. And it, it comes from your soul and your hands and your eyes and your, your taste buds. And um, I, find it, I find it instinctual. And so that's where I come from in short. Beautiful. All right, I'll jump in. Um, I, I would say that actually, without realizing it, I had become aware of these issues when I was a kid. Um, when I was really young, I remember I was probably you know seven or eight years old. It was a time when my uh, when my father was um, working. He worked in the defense industry on some level, aerospace, mm -hmm. and it was a really bad time in that industry. And I didn't understand it at the time, but at the time, there would be uh, suddenly he would come home with these big boxes that said U.S. Department of Agriculture on them, and inside would be cornflakes or uh, dried milk, nonfat dried milk, um, really delicious, huh? So he would come home with these boxes and I would get excited because I got cornflakes, a little sugary kind of a cereal instead of the puffed wheat that my father normally would eat. So for me it was great, but I, I knew even then somehow that this was not great for my family that they were experiencing this. But jump forward about 10 years when I was in high school, my father who's since passed on, he was a bit of a pack rat. He, a product of the Depression, was um, someone who held on to a lot of stuff, and our garage reflected that reality. <laughs> and I would go, I, I knew that somewhere in there was his stamp album. And I, did I just turn this off? Mm -hmm. Okay, is this, oh, it is working, okay. Uh, I knew the stamp album was in there somewhere, so I'd go on these excavations into uh, the garage, and I was looking for the stamp album and I knew that my father had some great stamps and I was a collector. And um, I never found the stamp album, but I did find the old boxes that had the Department of Agriculture seal on them. And I, I wanted to get rid of these boxes because it's like, you know, it was just clutter in my parents' garage. 
And um, I, I wanted to throw them out, but my, I didn't understand why my mother really wanted to hold on to these or what she was worried about. And then finally, it kind of, it, it dawned on me that in this era before the blue, green, and black trash cans, there was a sense in her that it needed to be put into a plastic trash bag because she didn't want any of the neighbors to know that we had received these commodities. And so it was a lightning bolt of, of sort of a, a, a um, really a light bulb went off in my mind of, wow, being poor, being um, in, in the marginal places in our society is a scary thing for people and, and embarrassing and, and shameful for them. And it just, I think, motivated me to realize that there are a ton of ways in which people feel uh, completely left behind and even embarrassed by their fate. And that has been a motivating factor for my justice work. Thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. Sarah. Um, well, as Devorah said, when I, we were driving here together, I told her I became a vegetarian when I was nine. Um, and um, I grew up, my mom was, is a vegetarian, and so I and, um, had grown up in a pretty um, activist household in Washington, D.C. Um, but... Um, so I'd really spent most of my life, I was just a vegetarian and um, hadn't really thought beyond um, animal welfare and health issues. Um, and then it was when I started actually doing research um, on the movie Food Inc. And I went to Slow Food USA. They had this big um, event in San Francisco and it was that was like, whoa, oh my gosh, there's this whole other world. And it was still more foodie oriented, but this is when I, I mean, I was paid to spend a year researching, um, you know, everything about food issues, whether it was workers' rights or pesticides, you know, water pollution, things like that. Um, and I have actually a master's in public health, and um, in public health school, the number one issue that people were most interested in was obesity. But, um, I, meanwhile, had been doing research on pesticides, but when I started doing this food ink research, this was like, oh, I understand the whole thing now. I all how everything is connected, whether it's workers' rights or animal welfare, um, obesity, food access, things like that. Um, and I really look at the challenges of the food movement as a, as a spiritual crisis, um, because when we're not living in line with the values that our different religious traditions teach us, it's a spiritual crisis. So when we're polluting our bodies and the planet, I do not, there is not a single religion that approves of this. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you know, you can pick up a Sidor Tanakh in here right now and, you know, there's a million passages about respecting the earth, respecting yourself mm -hmm. and other human beings. So I, that's why I really um, have this really strong commitment to Netziah and addressing these issues through a faith lens because I think when you're speaking a language that resonates with people and when people um, really have regard for a religious leader and their teachings, um, you know, it really helps to connect the dots between what you're doing in your daily life and what your religious tradition teaches you. Um, and obviously, you know, I think this could be applied to every single, you know, social issue in our society and food is just the one that I have personally um, taken on, um, but that's, that's, you know, that's the work of Netzia, of dry, you know, really working with people who are driven by their faith traditions to take what those teachings are and start 
acting on them in their lives. Mm, thank you. Sue, as you answer this question, can you speak to um, what personal changes you've made in terms of your shopping patterns, where you purchased your food before you were conscious of some of these issues we've been discussing tonight, and, and what changes you've made today? Well, I, I think I was turned on to this issue, actually, at first by seeing Food, Inc. I think that film was a very pivotal thing for me. It, it kind of started teaching me about <clears throat> that I, what, things I did not know about, about my food sources. And um, it fit in kind of with my own history of being involved with the peace movement and you know, various social justice kinds of um, efforts in my life. But in terms of my own changes, Devorah, it's really been a gradual thing. And I, I think it's really important I, in all of my educating about this, I try to emphasize to people that it isn't, uh, it's an ongoing process. And if you just change one thing, that's a very huge step. You're, 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 you're becoming part of a movement. There really is a movement going on now. And I think for me, it's just been one step at a time. Uh, I, I just kept doing one more thing, one more thing. I mean, it, I know it took me a while to, um, I had all these spices in my spice drawer that were, I don't know what they had radiated, you know, who knows where they came from. But I, eventually, I finally got to the point where I started buying organic spices. That was a big step because they were so much more expensive. But I think it's just been a step-by-step -step thing. And especially going along with learning, the more I would learn, I mean, when I started learning about the animal situation and the, the cows and all that, that was a big thing. It was really hard for me not to make certain changes as I learned. Um, and then the connections to Judaism. I mean, I was so committed to the ethical, you know, parts of Judaism. And as everyone has been saying, you know, there, there, I couldn't live with this disconnect. I, I, I had to become part of this, even if I didn't do it all. Just to take one step. Does that answer your question? I think so. Yeah, thank you. One step at a time. Mm -hmm. So we're going to just go a little deeper now into the Jewish aspects of, of our journeys, our respective journeys um, into food organizing. I, I think that for many of us, um, kashrut doesn't exactly capture the essence of what the food movement is discussing and, and struggling and advocating for today because so many of us are vegetarians or vegans. So as I ask you this next question, please speak to um, your take on ethical kashrut, not only what it's missing, but also what it holds for you, what kashrut means to you, Rabbi, today, as a, as a vegan, as a committed animal rights activist, what, what does it mean to be kosher? Yeah, I mean, to be kosher means to have a consciousness of the suffering of uh, all the other life forms that are um, depend that we're dependent on to eat and to survive. And uh, you know, for me, it was there were a couple of lightning bolts that also hit me um, when I was learning about uh, how we consume food. And um, I, I, at this point, am vegan, and at home, I don't um, have any. Uh, non-vegan products. Uh, it took me a while to get to that place, but a couple of things. The, the film Earthlings um, had a huge impact on me and made me realize that it didn't matter whether... And, and if you see the film Earthlings and 
any of you can watch it if you have a web browser and go to earthlings.com. It's pretty horrific. But you see all the ways in which, not just in the context of food, but in all, all ways of manipulation of, um, of life forms, human beings are really um, being destructive to our fellow earthlings on this planet. Um, for me, kashrut has always, the word kasher really means proper. Like, you know, what is proper and what is not proper? And it is improper, it is an insult for us to not have a, if we're going to um, injure other, other beings, it's, an, it's bad enough that we're doing it, it's even more ugly for us to not acknowledge it. And so kashrut is having an awareness that your, that your existence on the planet, it is a blessing, but with that blessing comes um, the potential for a great deal of, of injury and even curse for other creatures. Uh, you know, when you, when you drink milk, you are de facto killing uh, the calves that are born to those, uh, those cows that are continuously impregnated. When you eat eggs, you are... Uh, also contributing to an industry that wholesale uh, grinds up baby chicks, you know, just throws them in the garbage, if even that. And, and so are we aware of that as we're eating these things? It's not pleasant. And, you know, <laughs> in our Jewish tradition, you know, one thing that I always loved about Jewish tradition is it no, we've always post- postulated that the goal in life is not to um, be happy. <laughs> I mean... It's good for us to be happy, and if we don't find a place of satisfaction and sustainability, then we're not going to be in a great place. But we actually have this idea of the taken olam b'malchut shaddai to to um, to fix the world with the uh, the rule of God of the Almighty, and part of that is recognizing our relative place on this planet. And so, kashrut for me means having that higher consciousness that goes beyond the immediate surrounding to remembering what came before and what is following when we eat food and also when we throw it into the trash when we don't eat all of it and it has to be sorted by underpaid uh, poverty wage uh, employees and all of the ways in which it's the food industry actually goes beyond our stomachs into the waste system as well. Mm -hmm. That's another panel maybe hosted here. (laughs) Becca. Like Rob, I said, um, the notion of uh, kashrut as what is proper or what is worthy um, is, it, it's come for me from a place where I grew up in a kosher home in an area where just post-civil rights movement in the 70s and 80s, where the community was very, very engaged in this notion of integration and the rights of all human beings. And the next level was this notion of environmental justice as well. What are you doing for the earth? What are you doing against the earth? What are you doing with your fellow human? What are you doing against your fellow human? And that this notion of human to humanness and human to earthness um, are are part of our greater community. Um, so that's that's kind of where where I come from, um, on one hand, um, and this notion of what is worthy and what is proper to put into my body, what is my my mother's body, my neighbor's body, my friend's body, and then you look at the greater industrialized uh, food complex, and I care about you. I care what happens to your body. We look at 
everybody in here probably knows someone who has had some sort of cancer. Major illnesses, neurological issues. There are so many illnesses in our society and we are quick to medicate, but less quick to look at, is there a problem with our food? Are we poisoning ourselves? Mm. And this is a big question for me when I look at kashrut. It's not necessarily milk and meat or bacon or no bacon. It's about this notion of worthiness and properness of what it is that we put into our bodies, our body as temple. Mm. Very good. Very good. Sue, would you like to add to that? I don't really have anything to add. <laughs> that that is an everyone's powerful. beautiful statement. Mm -hmm. I will say that I was not raised with kashrut as an important uh, Jewish value in my own background. I came from a very reformed background. And it's only since my interest in the food industry and the idea of ethical kashrut that I have been interested in kashrut. So I appreciate. Now, I have more of a connection to the concepts of kashrut now than I did when I was growing up. It's interesting. Before Sarah, I'll just I'll just mention uh, as a, a reconstructionist community, um, and uh, and uh, some of us are, are also reform. Some of us are um, conservative, but really grappling with the idea of how to reframe, how to reconstruct, how to rethink some of these traditional ideas that don't exactly speak to us. And there is a movement happening not only across this country but also in Israel to really wrestle with what it means to have a K in a circle on the outside of a product, to be a stamp of a kosher, a certification. What does that label mean? And what does it mean to have a U? And, and is there a way of connecting more deeply with the concept of a heksher? Um, and I think that one of the things that inspires me the most is, is looking at how we as Jews can really wrestle and say, okay, the, the standard that has been upheld for all these years doesn't speak to me. It doesn't mean anything to me because it doesn't touch the issue of GMOs and it doesn't touch the issue of um, other, other things that matter so much to me as an organizer or as an activist. So the organizing, organizations that are looking at um, Ma'agal, like there's this... Um, this Magal Tzedek and Tav HaYosher, these new labels that are coming out now, are helping communities to rethink the values that we place behind um, standards of kashrut so we can become more conscious and more clear of what it means to put food inside our systems that have been stamped with approval. For me, for example, what matters most right now is that I buy a product that is stamped and certified non-GMO. And kashrut doesn't touch that issue. So I'm, I'm, I'm inspired by, by the reconstructionist movement, by the reform movement, and by groups within each of our other movements um, in, in, throughout Judaism that are really, really deeply wrestling with these questions right now. Sarah, can you add? The only thing I would add is that um, my Israeli boyfriend will often say to me, Sarah, if you have to choose between sustainable and kosher, what would you choose? And um, now my answer is sustainable. I mean, it's the same as Devorah. Like, if I had to choose you know, a product that was GMO-free or organic, organic and GMO are the same, but or something can, if something's GMO-free, then it, if something is organic, it cannot have GMOs. But anyway, between that and kosher, I mean, it's a no-brainer. Um, and, um, you know, one thing I would say is um, 
you know, if you look at, uh, you know, there's a million things that are certified kosher now. I mean, Oreos, there's Israeli junk food, Bam Bam, and all this creme, Bamba. Bamba, whatever it is, and Crembo, and I mean, you can go in, you know, most products, Pop-Tarts are probably, you know, certified kosher and this and that, and, you know, some could say, like, look, it's like, you know, Jews are accepted, and it's mainstream in America, and you don't have to hide behind being kosher, and you can go to, you know, a regular supermarket, and this and that, and, and I, you know, yeah, on the one hand, it's great, you know, American assimilation, you know, integration into society, and that we're not, you know, having to go to special markets for kosher food, but on the other hand, it's like, this is a travesty that these products are being um, certified as kosher, you know, as fit food, um, so. Mm. Becca. Um. Because I'm a teacher, I brought handouts. <laughs> um, so on this handout, there's a um, a uh, there are four parts. Um, what is kadosh sacred? What is kasher proper? What is tahor permissible? And what is tameh impure? Which are classical Hebrew words for describing. Um, what is and what is not uh, kosher. So I want you just to take the handout and make a list for yourself of what foods are and are not for you. Does anybody need a handout? Put your hand up if you need a handout. By the way, if you go vegan, then you only have to worry about Passover and wine, pretty much. That's it. (laughs) Oh, people are wondering about wine. Um, there's some really strange laws out there. I, I say strange as a liberal rabbi uh, that talk about the possibility of wine, um, the grapes that are picked being potentially used for sacramental purposes by other religious traditions. And there's this unusual category within the Talmud that talks about the, you know, what would happen if you drink wine that was used for sacramental purposes by Christians or other religious traditions because as we know in the catholic tradition when you drink wine you're drinking um in the context of commune of of of, what's it called communion communion you're literally drinking according to catholics the body uh the the blood of jesus so that's a problem from a jewish perspective from a from a fourth century jewish perspective might also be a problem that a lot of uh, the standard of kashrut, uh, what distinguishes wine from, uh, what makes a wine kosher, is if the impurities of having non-Jews work the grapes and press them is removed. And so for people who are very much interested in uh, being inside a multi-faith, multicultural, multi-ethnic society, that's a difficult one to swallow as well. So kosher wine uh, carries with it a lot of weight (laughs) and sugar. Becca, did you want to explain this any further or should we move on? It's really more of an exercise for you to look at um, the food that you personally consume. What is it that you deem worthy, legitimate, sacred, impure, permissible, etc.? 
And so I ask you to think about every aspect of the food grown um, and uh, think about food that's grown, food from family and cultural obligation, your personal taste, the appearance of food, allergies that you may have, um, um, and how food is grown and harvested if that is or is not a thing for you. So it's just an exercise for you to think about what to you personally is legitimate, worthy, impure, pure food for you. And um, we'll see what happens if we have time at the end. Well, actually, that. that leads us right into our next question. So I, I think, um, thank you for giving us all a homework assignment. I'm not sure who will grade them, but this is a good, very tangible thing that we can go home. <laughs> uh, the next question, the last question I'm going to pose right now, and then we'll open it up to the room, is um, I'm going to ask each of you um, to give some very, very tangible, concrete uh, one thought to share with the room. After this panel tonight, you're going to go back home and your head might be very full from all the, this, this discussion. We've brought a lot, we've put a lot onto the table. What's one thing, one concrete thing that you would recommend that people can do when they leave here tonight? Rabbi. Oh boy, I, I mean, where my mind has been for the last 24 hours has been all about Walmart, actually. Yeah. We have a major action tomorrow in Chinatown where they, against the will of the community there, decided to open up a Walmart. And, um, and many of our elected leaders are on the dole of Walmart that uh, they were able to get it through without a lot of um, real opposition. And Walmart is so big and so bad, I, I don't think there's anything that I have a harder time with than that corporation because of, I mean, who ha those of you who haven't seen the film, um, the high cost of low wages should see it. Um, but when it comes to the issues of food justice, there's no doubt that they are, even as they greenwash their products, they're such a big, big problem. So I would say spread the word that, that one should not have any association with that corporation. I mean, it's, it's as simple as that. Find the online petitions that are saying, you know, Walmart, out of our Supreme Court. Walmart, get away from the uh, stand your ground laws uh, that ALEC, which they fund, um, has been pushing to push guns into the streets. Um, but very specifically, when it comes to food, uh, you know, Walmart, you are using the idea of organic and locally grown food to mass mass dupe the, the consumers into thinking that you're an ethical uh, corporation when there's nothing ethical about enslaving people uh, overseas and, um, and, and making things so miserable. I, I, I really can't. Um, we, we've lost so much because of the force of the Walton family. Six people have more wealth than 47% of the population of the United States combined. Six people on one side Hundreds of millions of people on the other. That's how much wealth these, this family has accumulated. And so we have to really start to, well, we have, beyond start, we need to do everything we can to push them out of this system. Thank you. Sarah. Um, I would just um, say that, um, sorry, I'm not articulating this. Know where your food comes from. So whether you shop at a supermarket and you look at the label or you go to a farmer's market, talk to the farmer. Where's their farm? Where do they grow the food? Um, things like that. Get to know where your food is grown. 
Sue. Um, I just get a couple of short thoughts. I, 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 I hope that people will not be overwhelmed by this topic. We, we present so much bad information. It's, it's so overwhelming. And I want you to feel positively about it because there is a wonderful movement going on. There are green restaurants opening all over the place. We'll, we'll get there. Can oh, we're you speak get to, to one specific one recommendation specific, for the uh, people? One think? specific thing would be to open your mind to information. As Michael Pollan says, when people find out more, they change. If you were to pick one act, I would say buy organic milk. <laughs> I don't know. Why milk? Well, I, people often will ask me, what's one thing I can do? If you don't buy organic milk, I would say, because the persecution of the cattle is so great. It's so, the dairy industry is so abusive, and almost all the milk in every market comes from these abusive situations like that picture that I showed you. And I think that's one easy thing that people can do. And you don't want to give your kids GMOs. I mean, you don't want those children drinking the same pesticide gene that got given to the cow that's producing the non-organic milk. So that would be just one act, but mainly don't get overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. I would say if you um, had to do one act, it would grow food with a child. Mm. See the look on the face of a child and the bond that happens between people and the bond that happens between people and earth when you grow food together. And you'll be inspired. Excellent. Can I change my one thing? <laughs> it's two words. It's two words. Go vegan. I went vegan, but not by choice. <laughs> My infant cannot eat anything right now. I, can, I have no dairy, no soy, no nuts, no eggs. I'm raising chickens, but can't eat my own eggs. I'm vegan right now, but not by choice. <laughs> um, I, let, let's open up to the room and take a couple of quick questions, and we're going to come back and talk about what's positive, what's right. You can walk away with that and feel good tonight. Who's got a question they'd like to throw out to our panel? And I'm going to request that you do it into the mic just so that those at home streaming can actually hear the question. Or can you guys just repeat the question? Sure. We can certainly do that. Okay. Let's do mm -hmm. that one. Go ahead. I'll just repeat the question. What does organic mean when you're buying organic? And is it anything beyond pesticides and fertilizers in terms of the workers and um, treatment of animals and so forth? <laughs> well, I can speak to it a little bit. Um, of course, this is not an easy answer because there's big organic and then there's small organic. So um, small organic is small farmers. Big organic is um, companies like Earthbound Farms and um, yeah, Horizon Organic, which is Dean Foods. Um, so one thing that you're seeing in the organic movement is that large corporations um, understand that they can make money from this, and they're gobbling up smaller companies. So, um, so you have to be um, so from a health perspective, eating organic is better. Um, from a corporate power perspective, from a workers' rights perspective, it's not always, quote-unquote, better. 
And so that's why you need to know where your food comes from. So Cascadian Farms, for example, that's owned by, I think, like um, Kraft or I don't know, one of these big companies. Um, and one of the things you can do is if you look at um, the GMO labeling law that unfortunately did not pass in California and they just voted on it in Washington State, um, if you look at the companies that supported it versus did not support it, gave money against it, it's really telling, like Lara Bars and Honest Tea, for example, gave money to against GMO labeling. And Naked. Um, yeah, Naked Juice. I mean, a lot of these, they're owned by Kellogg, you know, these big companies. Um, the one thing I will say about organic is that um, it is better for workers. Um, you know, the difference between being sprayed, as Sue talked about, a crop duster, um, organic does not mean, though, 100%. It's not just, you know, putting cayenne pepper on plants to keep bugs away. I mean, there is, the, uh, the USDA does allow for some use of um, chemical fertilizers and so forth. Um, but it is going to be safer for farm workers, and it will be better for your health. If something is, or labeled organic, it cannot have GMOs in it. That doesn't mean that there isn't necessarily crop um, drift from GMO farms, but um, in general, you know, it, you, you would hope that there would not be crop drift in to uh, an organic farm. It also means that the food cannot be grown in sewage sludge. So it's basically those three principles. Um, maybe I can talk to this. So, um, I mean, this is what I do. I do a number of things, but one of the things that I do is I teach the environment course. Um, I run an organic garden. I run a CSA program at the school. And I can tell you four years ago when we started our CSA, which is community-supported agriculture, um, for those of you that don't know, and it's basically we have a fruit and vegetable co-op at the school. When we signed up with our particular CSA provider, we were the second school to sign up. Uh, three years later, three and a half years later, our one provider, our one little mom-and-pop company that we work with has something like 50 schools um, and the and it's constantly growing. In fact, we used to get a lot of attention from our company, and we get a lot less attention now. But that's okay because they 
there is a there's hope there. There's one company that's bringing together all these local organic farmers to bring fruits and vegetables to schools, not only just so that people have um you know their their co-op boxes, but programming anytime we have an open house, um I I bring, you know, speakers such as all of these wonderful people to my classroom to have these conversations. We always watch Food Inc. In fact, I I question often showing food in my class anymore because they've already seen it in some of their other classes and they're like oh this one again it's so depressing you know what i mean we haven't gotten there yet guys um and um and i think you're right it is in the schools where you can reach parents where you can reach kids and they become voters and they are consumers and they make choices so um i think you're right and i think that there's there's a lot of hope there So the question was, is it predominantly here or is it also in other places? I think it's absolutely in other places. I think, you know, we have um, an amazing gift in Southern California of having all this amazing sunshine where you can be outdoors all the time. You can grow food year-round. You can you have CSA produce year-round. Um, but I'm on a listserv where there are um, CSAs happening uh, in New York and New Jersey and Connecticut and um, Colorado and certainly in the VA area. Um, I don't know if anyone else wants to address this, but this is absolutely a growing thing where parents are interested and educators are interested. Children are learning. Yes. There's a... Um Oh, really quickly, there's a group called the National Farm to School Network, which is based out of um, the Institute for the Environment or something to that effect at Occidental College. And they um, are oversee all of the farm to school programs. Um, they're like a coalition group. Um, and there's thousands of farm to school programs at schools all around the country now. And the one other thing I would say is that what you do in your home really resonates with kids. and I mean, I, like Devorah said, I became a vegetarian when I was nine. My mom is a vegetarian, and so, you know, it, it was someone I looked up to and respected and obviously emulated. So what you're doing in the home really will translate to your kids. And it might not feel so good if somebody approached you when you were in the market online and said, I don't think that it's good that you're buying that much meat. So I, I agree that you can have more of an impact going through your institutions as well through schools and through your religious institutions, we can make a difference. Hi, my name is Nicole, and thank you all for speaking tonight. It's very educational, and this place should be packed. <laughs> First off, um, so I, I had a statement that I wanted to make and a question, and, and it stems from what they were saying, and I'm very much like you. I am an environmentalist. I work with working groups. I have a working group in Venice called Kiss the Ground. We're starting a community garden and an art installation. And we had a very uh, big gentleman uh, that's from Portland by the name of Mark Lakeman, who's an architect and a community builder. And communities can organize. So you guys as a community can go into your community and transcend this information in a positive manner. Um, one of the things that really struck me is everything that you talked about and big oil and all of this. And we all know that we've been holding to the big oil. And besides using our cars less and looking at good food, I want to know what your take is on getting L.A. to compost, understanding that will reintroduce the soil back to health, 
where we can then grow our own food in schools and in homes. And if you can't grow food in your home or in your school, having your neighbors do this with you and making more of a community. What are your thoughts on activating that now that we have a mayor who actually cares about sustainability and he installed a guy named Matt Peterson who came from Global Green USA for 15 plus years as the head of sustainability for LA? Well, I think this has actually been an interesting conversation that Deborah and I had a while ago about large-scale transition, you know, systems change. And um, we, were, we were at one point dealing with the question of food deserts in Los Angeles and the question of how do we make sure that there is, um, you know, healthy options for people in these communities. You know, I, I come with a strong commitment to labor and the, and the worker justice issues and out of that place, um, I, I don't know if we will all agree to sort of the conclusion I have. I don't think that we as a society are, cl are even close to the place where we've been able to figure out how to do sustainable agriculture in urban areas. And therefore, um, while I do believe that we need to move in that direction, I think that there is no substitute for creating uh, better... Uh, better industries. You know, right now Walmart has more than more groceries. I'm sorry, I keep talking about Walmart. Walmart sells more groceries than the three big ones combined. Kroger, which is Ralph's, Vons, and Albertsons. Across the country, if you compare, Walmart actually sells more groceries than the three of them combined because that's what's happening to all of our industries. You mentioned Global Green. As much as I would love to be excited about that, I just yesterday saw that Global Green receives money from the Walton family. So it makes me a little bit skeptical. Good. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Okay. And I respect Eric's choices on these matters. So, yeah. We are at, at my organization and at our sister organization, LA Alliance for a New Economy, working on a campaign called Don't Waste LA, which is to try to minimize the amount of waste that's being created and to ensure that uh, compost options are stronger. And in the realm of uh, for family and uh, commercial uh, waste uh, pickup, I think that we have to have both strategies in mind. We need to figure out how to um, change people's the culture and people's thinking, as well as, in the meantime, figure out how to do better with our um, with our uh, recyclables and our um, composting and all those options. I'll just quickly add to that that the I'd like to quickly add that the city also provides compost. You can put anything inside your green bin. The city will will work at it at very very high temperature. I understand, but it, it, they're moving in the they're moving in the right direction, and we also have to acknowledge that, that that that's quite important. Almost all of the city gardens that we've installed, we've installed ten gardens to date. We've used that compost, and it's very very good quality. It's not excellent, but it's but we're getting there, and I think that's important to keep in mind. Um, let's take one more question, and and. Very expensive. 
expensive. We're very privileged here on the west side to be able to go to the farmer's market. I was at the one in Santa Monica today. They're very expensive. And you keep talking about Walmart, but Walmart has a place because people can't afford what they're charging at Ralph's. And, you know, the markets here are outrageous. Okay. So I just want someone to address cost, cost and then... And a quick, quick comment. comment. Just a very quick that? comment. Um, well, my daughter coordinated, but we got our compost bin for free, and anyone can. So I don't know if it's something that people don't read their materials in the mail or. Okay. Right. So just a comment. Anyone in this room can go get a free compost bin from LA City, as right. we've been using it for over a year. Take the labor question. The cost question. Um, I can speak a little bit to cost, and I also got a free compost bin from the city. I f found this, them in Griffith Park, so if you go, it's quite a journey to find them. But anyway, um, cost, absolutely. People will say, you know, eating organic is an elitist, expensive thing. So um, there's a couple of things. First, I, um, I feel like I'm making a political statement and a social statement because I will only buy my produce at a farmer's market. So maybe, um, you know, if I have a limited amount of money, instead of donating my money, you know, to a nonprofit organization, I'm going to be essentially spending that money um, at a farmer's market um, and, you know, helping a small farmer stay in business. Um, second, I can tell you as a farmer market junkie that there is definitely a variation in prices at farmer's markets. Um, and... Um, so that's another thing to just be aware of in terms of where you're shopping. Um, there are some phenomenal programs, um, some of which are funded by the USDA, um, that allow, um, that are encouraging farmers markets to take food stamp benefits, for example. So the La Cienega Farmers Market, which is on Thursday evenings, um, they have, they take food stamp benefits. There's programs where you can, um, it's like double your bucks or something market of that match. name. What is it? Market match. Market match, yes. Yeah. So you come with food stamp benefits, and for like every $5 you spend, you're going to actually get $10. So there's a lot of incentives like that. I think also when you look at, um, you know, you can buy a box of Pop-Tarts for $1.99, um, but there, it's not nourishing food, it's not healthy food, and, you know, you can buy a basket of organic strawberries, you know, a tray of them, you know, they're, like, going to be 3 or $4 each. Like, look at, yes, you're going to spend a dollar more, but what are the health benefits of, you know, skipping the Pop-Tart and buying that? On the other hand, I will say, absolutely, it's a big problem that, that we have food deserts, that people are not able to access organic local foods. And again, this is one of the things Netia is working on, and this is one of our societal responsibilities. How do we expand access to um, these organic foods so that when someone goes to the supermarket, that they're not having to opt for only the Pop-Tarts, which are on sale for $1.99, because they cannot afford to buy a watermelon or things like that. And that, once again, for another panel discussion, gets into our government subsidies. Our government does not provide subsidies for produce. Our government only provides subsidies for commodity crops like corn, soy, wheat, things like that. So that's one of the reasons why um, there's um, 
in, um, in you know, these low prices for meat and so forth um, and not for um, produce. So it's, you know, more complicated thing beyond us, but I would just say every time you go to shop, just think about when you go to that farmer's market, what are you investing in? You're investing in a small farmer. You're investing in, you know, cleaner water. You're investing in a community, and you're investing in your health. And just to add to that, there are certain fruits and vegetables that you really should buy organic. There's a list called the Dirty Dozen. So you can look that up online. There are 12 um, different fruits that are listed that you absolutely should. Right, I understand. I think that, the, that for everybody else that can't afford it, uh, that there's really a conversation about how important it is to go local and to buy food that's sustainably sourced, that, that we are purchasing within a 200-mile radius of Los Angeles. It doesn't have to be organic. So the Dirty Dozen list shows you the fruits that you absolutely should buy for your own safety and sanity to buy healthy, uh, buy organic. But then there's also the rest of the vegetables and fruits that you don't have to buy organic. You have to buy local. And that's much more affordable. And, uh, okay. Um, so I think what we, what we need to do is very quickly, we're, we're, we're just, this conversation could go on and on, and I want to very briefly speak about what we can do. Um, what can we do about all of this? So I'm going to share with you Nitya's approach to addressing um, something that really feels very vast. Um, we tried to make this conversation as focused as possible by choosing just particular strands to think about. This doesn't cover the, entire, the entirety of issues that are raised when you begin to really climb into the food movement. But what Nitya is looking at in L.A., explicitly in L.A., is how institutions can make a difference. So instead of just the environmental movement where we're going home and changing a light bulb, that kind of thinking that we uh, maybe thought more about in the 90s, certainly in the 80s. Um, the idea is, can we go into the institutions that we care the most about, and can we organize within those institutions to affect change? So we are now 32 institutions as part of our network, and we're trying to find ways that we can collaborate Jews, Christians, and Muslims that care about these issues, that can we be stewards of the earth, can we address issues like food insecurity from the place that we're deeply rooted inside our faith traditions? Can we, can we work together um, to, uh, to look at these issues um, as, uh, you know, and, see, and see the similarities and find the common ground and plant that ground together? So basically we have two programs. One does just that. The Just Gardens program plants ground together. We've planted up 10 food gardens uh, around the city in our institutions. And we just received a contract this, this week to uh, plant food gardens in churches and food deserts. So we're going to be going into East LA and South LA and building um, food gardens in churches this coming year. So it's a very exciting um, step for us because like you said we have access we have access to every market so we don't actually need to get food from our institutions if there was a Kehilat Israel uh, garden here we wouldn't necessarily require that for our own sustenance but in these churches they most certainly will need that um, 
The most exciting thing for me about the Just Gardens program right now is that we're rethinking some of the agrarian roots of our tradition. So in the Tanakh, in the Bible, we study ma'aser, which is tithing. Many of us give 10% of our income at the end of the year to charities that we believe in strongly. And <clears throat> what Nitya is looking at, looking at is can we compel the institutions that we believe in to convert 10% of the land that is unused into productive food gardens at our institutions. So 10% isn't just signing a check at the end of the year, but 10% is growing food every day of the year, getting congregants out into learning the skills necessary to get closer to our food sources. So that's a rethink around Maaser. We also have the Shemitah year coming up. For the first time in, um, in, in, in our history in the United States, we're going to be finding ways to practice Shemitah as part of a, the network inspired by Chazon. Uh, we will be studying how to have a Shabbaton for the land, how to give a Sabbath year to rest this land and, to, and put compost onto the land to revitalize the microbiology so that the food that we're eating can actually become nutritious and vital so that we can do mitzvot from a place where we are healthy and not eating crap food that's grown out of um, eroded soils that are actually more like dirt than soil. Our second program um, is called Just Foods. And what we are doing right now with our council, which a bunch of our members of our council, our executive council, Susan Hamer, a bunch of people on, on our panel are here tonight, um, is we are aiming to foster community food security in LA. And we're organizing around the ethics of institutional scale food relief and food sourcing programs. So it's not really just about us as individuals and the individual choices we make when we're online at a market. It's about what our institutions do when they're purchasing for all of us. And they think about the bottom line, because we need to when we're running institutions. When you have a bar bat mitzvah, when you have an oneg shabbat, you want to buy inexpensive food because you need to feed 500 people at once. Well, imagine if that food was locally sourced and you knew your farmer, and your farmer was giving you a discounted rate because that farmer's also working with 32 other institutions around this city then we would be able to anchor the local farmers in LA, and then we would be able to begin to create alternative food systems in this city. So we're working on creating all kinds of educational programs like this one tonight, all around the city, focusing on um, learning more about the purchasing power of communities that work together in partnership, learning about um, organic gardening, learning about interfaith tech study, um, and food relief, how to make it more than just giving away canned food that we would never ourselves want to eat because it's expired, but it's cheap so we feel generous. How to really do a mitzvah when we're dealing with food relief. And lastly, food procurement. Like how to source good quality food because our communities matter. So getting the best quality food in here to eat after we daven, after we pray together, is, is, uh, could, could become one of the objectives of our institutions if enough of us spoke to that end um, in our communities. So in closing, I give that to you as a model because I think that what we're doing um, gives the, um, the possibility of taking different people's contributions and insights and energies and, and fusing them together uh, in order to create a, a tangible difference. I want to thank you, Lori. I, I know that you've put in just 
an, an inordinate amount of time into thinking about what your community needs to hear and, and is able to, um, to, to receive in, in a one night like extravaganza to delve into such big issues. And you've been um, a, a wonderful partner for organizing this. Thank you, Keilat Israel, for um, being willing to come out tonight and, and learn about issues that are, that are hard to hear about. It's much more pleasant to come to a, you know, a celebration of sorts and eat together like foodie fest, but this is, you know, it's difficult issues. Thank you for bringing forth a willingness to listen and to learn something new, something vital. And um, I, I, I just, I just want to leave us with, with this one thought, and then I know that we'd like to have the rabbi speak as well. So I'm going to leave us off with, with, um, with one thought, that just as in my body and just as in my own sacred home um, and just as in my own congregation, um, I can point to where there are limitations and, and, and kinks in our systems of what we're eating and... Um, there is no perfect way of addressing, um, the, of, of creating an Eden, a, a garden of Eden, um, back within ourselves. Uh, it's, it's not an easy um, thing to get to when our food system is so very broken. Um, but the most inspiring thing about being committed as a Jew to look at these issues for me is, uh, is that we're, we're able to wrestle with injustice. We're able to make smart choices as consumers. We're able to rethink the charitable models that our institutions support. We're able to rethink the dependency on handouts that is necessary today from, from religious institutions and from governments and from individuals. We're able to rethink that and to find a way to move more towards food sovereignty and food systems that stem, stem towards building an empowerment model for all of our communities to begin to work in partnership together. Um, the, the corporations have found their ways of working together. We need to find ours. Um, so if we want to urge that the food that we eat is worthy of a blessing, let us also urge that the food that our institutions take in be healthy and locally sourced, and that the food relief that our institutions give out be fresh and be green and also be worthy of a blessing. Because we stem from a really long line of wrestlers that have worked to reconstruct and to reform and to transform and to rethink all that needs to be changed. So we also hail from a rich agrarian tradition of tzedakah that provides us with the recipe of just how to do that. So thank you. Thank you for having us here tonight. So on behalf of KI, uh, we just really want to thank you all. I know it's, it's late and your parents and your people with things that you want to be doing and we just really appreciate you taking your time and your intelligence and your passion and your thoughtfulness about these issues and, and taking the time to come share them with us. Know that we do reduce, reuse and recycle. Um, this will be reused and recycled uh, because it is streaming um, and so uh, we also record it on a DVD. It will go on our website. 
so under learning, people who couldn't be here or people who hear about it or people who are just become interested in the issue and know that we are addressing it as a community will watch it on our website. So, uh, so all of this continues to be used. Um, you heard about CSA. If you'd like to be part of a CSA and don't know how, you can do that right here at KI. Uh, our school has a CSA. You don't have to be part of our school to be part of the CSA. And your box gets delivered here downstairs uh, every Wednesday. So if you'd like to be part of that, we really uh, encourage you to do that to support our local growers and farmers. Um, and for me, I, it's very easy to be overwhelmed, as we all know. Um, I'm not a vegetarian. Uh, just not going to happen anytime soon. I'm an omnivore, and that's just how it is. Um, I don't find kashrut to be a helpful category. I don't find tahor and tameh to be helpful categories at all. Kashrut is about how I express making decisions around eating Jewishly. I don't eat pork, I don't eat shellfish, I don't eat meat and milk together because I want to make some statement or I choose to eat it or whatever I do. It's a thoughtful decision about what is my Jewish connection calling me into right now. That is not about kashrut for me. Uh, I mean, the, you know, what we've been talking about tonight is not kashrut. For me, this is about brit. This is about covenant. And Rabbi Yitz Greenberg really encourages those of us who are not vegans to think about, you know, Eden in our story is perfection. And perfection was vegetarianism. Well, the first thing that happens when Noah gets off that boat is that he sacrifices and eats an animal. So the, the, the creation that we all come from, the second, you know, beginning is not one of Eden, of, of paradise. Cause, cause somehow God learns in that story, says, progressive Judaism anyway, God learns that we, we're just not there. And if we're expected to be there, guess what's going to happen? You know, smash it up and start over because we just can't handle it yet. And so for Yitz, Rabbi Yitz Greenberg, he really teaches that so the middle, it isn't we can't handle it, so just do whatever you want. It's that breed, it's that idea of covenant is how do we stretch past where we are now to the next reaching towards what for us would be perfection, what to us would be justice, would be, you know, all about eating in a way that was completely in line with our ethics and our values. Most of us aren't going to get to total alignment. We just aren't. But rather than give up, the idea of breach can be really energizing, right? That we, we just take the next step into covenant, whatever that is for each of us. So I hope this panel has inspired you as it has me to figure out, okay, so what is my family's next step, my own personal next step into living into the covenant? Thank you so much for joining us tonight. And help me again thank our panel for being here. And I did also want to thank all of you for coming and thank you panel. This has been exceeded my expectations and I was just could be happier to have had you here. I learned so much. Um, I do want to remind people if you didn't already pick up the resource sheet there is out there. It gives you websites, books, films. Um, there's information about how to find ethically raised meat, um, sustainable fish. Um, dairy, eggs. So there's information out there on the web. So whichever step you want to make is your next step. There's ways to find out where do you find these pro products and how do you change step by step. So that information's out there. There's also an article about ethical kashrut if you want to know more about it. It is actually coming from the Orthodox community, um, those who are ready to start making some changes. And so um, the article's written by um, Rabbi Shmuley Yanklevitz, who is Orthodox and really pushing this issue very strongly within the Orthodox community. So um, 
I'm, thank you again for coming, and I hope you have a nice evening.